may be seated. And if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, we read the end of John 20, and it feels like that was the end of the Gospel of John. Because if you look, and, and as you're turning there, I'll read it for you. It says, the end of ch chapter 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, isn't that just seem like the perfect ending, right? Like John should just end his gospel there, like he kind of wrote his conclusion, and yet there's this sort of epilogue of like, hey, but it keeps going. And, and why does John keep writing? Well, one of the things that we can know about God's gospel of grace is that it doesn't end. The gospel doesn't end just at the cross and say, well, that's it. No, no, God's grace continues even for our lives today that it continues on and it presents and impacts our everyday lives. So this passage that we're going to read this morning is the continuing of God's grace for us. So let us look as, as I read John 21, 1 through 14. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far off from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you remind us that your grace continues for our lives, that this is not something where um, you came, you rescued us, and then you left us alone, but instead you continue to be with us. You are with us this morning. Please let us study your word, apply it to our lives, and know the truth that you love us, care for us, provide for us, and want us to be in relationship with you. In your name, amen. What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? This was a question proposed to us as kids and, and teenagers and even probably adults in the church that I grew up in. That 
that sort of this, this implication of don't you want to be doing the right thing, right? And that was the first motivation that I think people were trying to get at is of don't you want to be serving the poor when Jesus returns? Or, or don't you want to be sharing the gospel when Jesus returns? I mean, imagine your reaction as you are caring for someone, that you're doing the will of God, that you're serving the poor, and Jesus appears. Wouldn't you be so excited? Wouldn't you be like, he caught me doing something good? And, and imagine Jesus' reaction. He would be so excited to say, like, you're doing the right thing. That's so great. Now, on the opposite side, that it was sort of a, 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 a warning to us of, like, now, what do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? You don't want to be doing that thing when Jesus returns, right? Like, you don't want to be committing sin. Like, imagine how you'd feel if you were sinning and all of a sudden Jesus appeared. Like, wouldn't you feel like, like garbage? Like, wouldn't you feel terrible? Like, and imagine Jesus' reaction to you of, like, the disappointment in what you were doing. Now, what's, what's great is we actually don't have to wonder about how we might react to Jesus and how Jesus might react to us because we have this passage in Scripture that they, they give us an example of, of what, how we might react when Jesus appears and how Jesus would react to us. And in this passage, it actually challenges us to continue to hear the gospel of grace and how the gospel changes the way that we respond to Jesus and the way we expect Jesus to respond to us. So there's going to be two ways that we look at this passage this morning is, one, how do we approach Jesus, and then how does Jesus approach us? So first, how do we approach Jesus? All throughout the Gospels, we see how people approach Jesus, and, and, and generally, I'm going to generalize this in two ways. If we took the entire morning to read the Gospel of John, we would be able to see there's two different ways that people approach Jesus. On the one hand, there's this sort of arrogant confidence that people approach Jesus with, and on the other hand, there's sort of this shameful fear. Now, on one side, there's this arrogant confidence, and, and this would typically be the Pharisees. This would typically be the religious leaders of the time, in which they would approach Jesus and go, I've got my life together. I have it all figured out. I'm a good person. I'm doing the right things. And they would sort of approach Jesus with this attitude of, who are you? <laughs> I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I got this. What, what are you doing? Why are you challenging me? And in, in Luke 18, actually, Jesus gives a parable of a Pharisee, and he says this, this Pharisee leaned on his own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And that was sort of the arrogant confidence of some people in those days where they'd approach Jesus and say, you owe me, or I got this, or I'm pretty good. But a Pharisee's life was, was, was just that. They were going to push themselves and push themselves and push themselves and, and do the right thing, do the moral thing, do the thing that God wanted them. So that way they could perform and say, I'm a good person. And they would look out among the crowd and go, I'm better than everyone else. And so when they looked at Jesus, they were able to approach him with an arrogant confidence of, I got this. On the other side, there was that shameful fear and this was typically the tax collectors or the prostitutes. And in John 4, Jesus actually meets with a woman at the well. And this woman has been married five times and is currently living with someone who she's not married to. And she's at the well by herself in midday. And Jesus starts pressing into her life. And you can tell throughout the story that this woman is hiding that this woman doesn't want to be found out, that this woman says, you know what, I don't think you should be here, depart from me, all right? 
And there are those throughout this Bible, throughout the gospel that Jesus meet with that you can tell already feel crushed. That, that they have this attitude that God must look at me and be disappointed. That God must want nothing to do with me. And, and like this woman, their attitude is, is, Jesus, stay away from me because I don't deserve to be in your presence. And for this woman at the well and for others, they say, I don't want to be near God. I don't want to be near the temple. I don't even want to be near society because I don't want to be found out because I have this shameful fear that I'm hiding. And as much as this is throughout the Gospels and as much as we can generalize, I think this is the way that we approach life today is, is there's probably half of us who feel like, I'm pretty good. I, I'm doing all right. Like, I have a stable job. I have a good family. I'm doing the right things. Like, I'm, I'm following the Bible. I come to church. I'm doing everything that I should be doing. Even if you're not a believer, this is still the attitude of society, right? We have two, we have two parties. I'm better than those other guys. <laughs> I'm better than those other guys, right? It's, it's this idea of, I'm better than other people that I'm good enough, that I figured it out, that I've got it together. And you go out with this arrogant confidence in being able to say, I've got my life together. And then I think that there's half of us who have that shameful fear, who say, my life's a mess. I'm fearful about fe being found out. I'm trying my best, but I am broken. I'm trying to go through life, but really, I, I kinda wanna keep people at a distance. Because if anyone found out the real stuff about me. If anyone found out the things that are actually going on, I would be crushed. And there's this distance in which you say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm not good, but I don't want, I, I'm fearful of being found out. And even if you're not a believer, you, you suffer with this, but it, even as believers, we suffer with this because this is the way that we typically approach Jesus. There are mornings where we come to church and we say, I'm doing great this week, Jesus. I'm ready to be here. I read my Bible, I did the right things. You know, let's praise the Lord because I'm in a great space. And then there's other weeks where you come to church and you go, I, I, I shouldn't be here. I'm fearful of being found out. I just hope that the pastor doesn't come and say good morning to me and somehow on my face it gives away the fact that I'm hiding this terrible secret. And we go back and forth usually between these two, where sometimes we feel like we're, we're all that, we got it all together, and sometimes we feel like our lives are a complete mess. So how does Peter approach Jesus? Now what's interesting about this passage is that we almost get to see, see the exact same circumstance happen between Jesus and Peter twice throughout the Gospels. In Luke 5, and you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 5, there's almost the exact same situation presented to Peter, all right? In Luke 5, there is a boat. And in John 21, there is a boat. And Luke 5, the disciples are fishing all night. And in John 21, the disciples are fishing all night. And in Luke 5, they catch nothing. And in John 21, they catch nothing. Do you see where I'm going with this? All right. So Jesus says in both passages, throw your nets out one more time. And in both passages, they catch a ton of fish performed by a miracle of Jesus. And in both passages, they realize that it's Jesus, that the Lord is among them. But in the passages, Peter's response to Jesus is different. 
In Luke 5, when Peter recognizes that it's the Lord, he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And now this is the first time that Peter is meeting Jesus. Jesus has no idea what his sin is. Jesus doesn't, or at least I think Peter doesn't know that Jesus knows all his sin. Peter just recognizes and has this shameful fear in which he says, depart from me. I am a bad person. I can't be around you. But in John 21, at this point, Peter has been around long enough that he knows that Jesus knows all his sins. And not only that, this is after Peter has denied Jesus three times. And they haven't talked about it yet. They haven't had the pep talk of, hey, you denied me three times. Peter still has that weight on his shoulders. So what would we expect Peter's approach to Jesus be? The same as before to probably jump down into the boat, to cower in fear, to say, Lord, get away from me. But what does he do instead? He jumps out of the boat. He grabs his tunic. He, he wraps around himself, even though he's about to get wet, and he jumps out of the boat, and he swims. He pushes against the waves to get to Jesus. And it's not as if the other disciples were like, we're going to keep fishing, and you go ahead. It's, <laughs> the boat is literally behind Peter. Like, he's just like, I got to be with the Lord, all right? Like a crazy man, he needs to approach the one that he loves. And so what has changed? Because the situation is the same. The sinful man is the same, but Peter's response is different. Why? There is only one thing that has changed in Peter's life. It must be that he has come to grips with who Jesus really is and what Jesus really has done for him. That he must have experienced the real, life-changing work of Jesus and believed it. And what Jesus says throughout the gospel is, I have come into the world. And he's not on the one hand coming into the world to say, you better shape up. Like I've come into the world to give you a moral improvement plan and you gotta get better. And if you do a good job, then you'll be considered a good person and you can have a relationship with me. On the other hand, he's not coming into the world to shame us. He hasn't come into the world to say, I've got a lot of problems with you people and you're gonna hear about it. No, he's come into the world and what did he say throughout the gospels? He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the good shepherd. And Peter must have believed these statements so much so that the only response he could give is to run to Jesus. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come to bring life and give it to the full. And Peter must have grasped that, that passage that we hold fast to of John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this is what Peter's responding to. For the first time in his life, he has seen and been told that his life matters to the one who created it. Not to perform, not to hide, but to love. To be in relationship with his savior. And this is the same for us is we get to see throughout the Gospels that we are to be in relationship with our Savior. And I want you to think back to maybe your elementary school days. Do you remember riding on the bus and it was the day that the report cards were handed out? And you had half the kids on the bus who got the A's, right? Or got really good grades. And they were so excited to get home. They were like, I hope the bus hits every green light. I can't wait to run home and show my parents that I got good grades. 
And then there was the kids on the other side of the bus who got the C's and the D's and maybe an F, and they go, I hope the bus breaks down. I, I, I hope that something happens. Um, and, and they walk home very slowly because they're worried about showing their parents their grades. Now, imagine in a perfect world that we could get on that bus and say to the kids, listen, you who got the A's, your parents love you today as much as they did yesterday. Your grades does not change their love for you. They are gonna love you the same. They're really proud of you. They're excited that you learned stuff, but they love you the same. And imagine being able to say to the students who got the C's and the D's and the F's, listen, your parents love you as much as they do today, or as much as they did yesterday, they love you today. It is not based on your performance. And imagine if the kids really understood that. What would take place? In both scenarios, they'd get off the bus running home. The A kids would still run home because they'd want to say, not, let me show you so you love me. They'd show you because they'd say, look what I've learned. Look how, look, look how I've grown. Look what, look what my teachers taught me and look what I've experienced. And for the kids who got these C's and the D's and the F's, they'd have to run home because they'd go, I messed up, but I need to be reminded of your love. I need to be told of how much you love me. And the parents in both scenarios say, I love you. Imagine if we as believers really grasped the love of God, that he loves us the same as he did yesterday, today, and forever. If we really grasped that, then our only response would be to run to God because our lives are not based on a moral report card. It's the same every day. It allow, if, if we actually allow this to take hold of our life, if we actually preach this to ourselves every day in which God loves me the same, then every day we get to go to God and, and hear the good news that I am loved, that I am wanted, that I am desired, that I'm provided for, and we can run to God knowing this truth. And then on the good days, I can praise God. I can say, God, look how much you've grown me. Look how much you've changed me. Look, look how you've helped me overcome sin. Look how you've, you've used me to share the gospel. And on the bad days, we can run home to God and go, God, I need to be reminded of your love. I need, I've really messed up. I've really screwed up. And in both scenarios, we get to hear from God, you are loved, not based on what you do, but what I've done on the cross. But in either case, we are running. And so the gospel gets to change the way that we approach Jesus. And not only do we get to hear in the gospel the ways that we approach Jesus, we actually get to hear in the gospel the way Jesus approached us. Because how do we expect Jesus to approach us? And I know we already read the passage, so we kind of know, but I, I want you to take a step back and think, really, what would we expect Jesus to approach Peter in this passage? How would we expect him to approach Jesus? Because listen, every one of us has people who have hurt us in the past. Every one of us have people who have wounded us in the past. And imagine them running up to you and pretending everything is fine. And that might actually have happened to you. Have you run into those people in the grocery store? They're like, hey, how's your kids? How's your family? And you're like, why are you talking to me? The last time that we interacted, it was not good. It was not pleasant. I don't want to be around you. Is that not the worst form of torture? And yet, Peter is doing that 
to Jesus, where Peter is running up to Jesus, and don't we expect Jesus to give Peter like a rebuke, a lecture, at least say something to Peter of like, what did you think you were doing when you denied me three times? But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do instead? He performs miracles and he serves breakfast. Wait, what? What? The guy who denied Jesus gets a miracle and, the, and, and, and gets to eat with the one he denied? What Jesus is showing Peter and what Jesus is showing us is that we have life, we have value to the Savior, so much so that he doesn't save us and push us away because that's what we want to do, right? For the person who runs up to you, we would want to say, I forgive them, but don't talk to me ever again. That's what we'd expect from Jesus. I'll forgive you, but stay away from me. No, Peter actually, or Jesus actually invites Peter in and, and says, come, eat with me, be with me, join a meal with me. And that's what Jesus does for us as well. And he doesn't just draw Peter and he actually does one more thing that I want to highlight. Look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Does Jesus need their contribution? No. The fish was already being made. Jesus already had the bread and fish. He could have already multiplied what he had. But he was teaching them and teaching us that the works of a believer, the works of someone in relationship with Christ are valued by him and a big deal to him. Once again, just go back to the illustration. If the person who has wronged you comes to you, it's almost as if we're called to not just push them away, not just forgive them, but bring them in and invite them to participate in our lives again. That's crazy. <laughs> That's what a crazy person does, and yet Jesus does that for us. Jesus invites us in and invites us to participate in the work of his ministry. And so what I want to make clear to all of us this morning is that there are those among us, and there are going to be day days where you feel like, I'm crushed. You feel like, God must look at me and be disappointed. That, that God must hate me, that God does not want to be around me, that there's no way that God could love me, that, that there's no way that God wants me. And yet, what does this passage say? It's the opposite. It's the opposite, that, that Jesus loves and forgives us and, and doesn't just love us from a distance, but actually draws near to us and doesn't just draw near to us, but invites us in and says, participate in the kingdom with me. Bring your contributions and I will use them to grow my kingdom. You will have an impact on my work in this world. Jesus is willing to do miraculous things for messed up people. Jesus is willing to make breakfast for the broken. Jesus is willing to use our contributions to show others the goodness of God. And in this final point, I want to make this, this there's something very interesting that takes place in this passage that I think we overlook a lot. This is the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. How many people has he appeared to in this passage? Just a few men. It's not 5,000, it's not this large group, it's a few. And not only that, does Jesus choose a sermon to share with them? No. Does he choose a list of commands to remind them? No, what does he do? 
he serves them breakfast. And I want to make clear that I think there's depth to that. That as normal Americans, we strive to perform. We say bigger numbers. We say big events. We say lecture series, TED Talks. We say, let's grow in this depth of knowledge. And yet, what is Jesus doing here that is so fascinating and having an impact on his kingdom and growing his kingdom and caring for people? What is he doing? Having breakfast. Jesus chose to spend some of his last days on earth with a few men and have breakfast with them. And that should not be diminished. Because imagine saying that to someone. Imagine saying, I follow a leader, and they're like, oh, what does that leader do? Oh, he, he just has breakfast with a few guys. <laughs> He'd be like, you know, there's like political leaders, there's business leaders. Like, look, this guy has like 10 million followers on Twitter. He has really wise things to say. You should follow him instead. No, I'll, I'll just follow a guy who chooses to have breakfast with a few guys. Or imagine saying that to someone like, imagine posting on social media, I just had one of the biggest things in my life take place, I had breakfast with a few people. And people would go, I post my breakfast online every day. That's no big deal. Like, that's not a big deal. Things to the world that are no big deal are a big deal to God. It's a big deal to Jesus, and it's a big deal to God. And what does this passage say to us then? That Jesus being with us in the small things is a big deal. And listen, it's not just for us. It's, it's really easy for us to say, no, I, I know Jesus loves me. I'm, I'm just this per I'm small, but Jesus loves me. No, it's, it's a big deal to the world as well. You doing the small things of faith is a big deal to the world, and it impacts the world. It impacts God's kingdom. Look, you won't get the attention of social media by getting to know the Wawa cashier, by just simply asking, what's your name? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? You won't get news coverage. You probably even won't get the attention of the church. Listen, me as a pastor, there's probably a lot of things that you guys do that I don't have any clue of, that, that we won't write about it in our annual report. But you caring for another person's soul is a big deal. Even though it's small to the world, it's a big deal to God even in the smallest things like having breakfast. And so I want to challenge you in three ways this morning. For some of you, I want to encourage you to maybe slow down. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to do the biggest. You don't have to do the grandest thing. If Jesus appeared and said, come have breakfast with me, and you got to go, I'm too busy, Jesus. <laughs> I got other things to deal with. Breakfast is too, you know, I don't have time for that then let me encourage you, you're probably doing too much. And for some of you, I'm actually asking you to see what Jesus sees. You might be a mom at home dealing with messes and wiping up snot and thinking, I wish I could do more. But you are making breakfast for an eternal soul that God has blessed you with. And that is your mission field right now. You are doing something that may be meaningless to the world, but is a big deal to God. And as a church, we're going to do a lot of things that are meaningless to the world, but are a big deal to God. We're going to gather in each other's homes, in community groups, and we're going to care for one another. And it's not going to get anyone else's attention, 
but it's a big deal to God. And when we have members go to the Mary Campbell Center to sit with the residents one-on-one, that is a big deal to God. And when you sit and have breakfast with someone and let them know that they are loved, that is a big deal to God. Jesus came and sat and ate some fish with some men. We can come and sit and do the work of the Lord. The gospel challenges us to change the way that we approach Jesus and the way we expect Jesus to approach us and challenge us. So go back to the original question. What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? And I think the best response to that is, does it matter? We could be doing anything. You could be serving the poor. You could be cheating on your taxes. You could be fishing. And the response is going to be the same. If we grasp the gospel, we are going to be running to Jesus. We are going to be running to the arms of our Savior because we recognize that we are loved. And Jesus' response is going to be the same. That even in the smallest of faith, Jesus is going to draw us in and serve us breakfast. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've loved us. We thank you that our lives are not based on a moral report card that we need to perform in order to receive your love. We thank you that we don't have to approach you in such a way that if we do the right things, we can come boldly, and if we do the wrong things, we have to come cowardly. Instead, it's the same response no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what we're doing, we get to run to you. So we pray that we grasp that in our lives, that the days that we feel confident in our own strength, you humble us. And in the days that we feel weak, you strengthen us so that we may turn to you in all ways, in all ways. And we thank you that you call us to do the work of the kingdom, even in the smallest of ways. We pray that we look and see what you call us to, not see what the world calls us to, not, not be encouraged by numbers and, and statistics and, and, and social media posts, but instead, let us be encouraged by your word. You have called us to have breakfast, (laughs) to sit and be with each other, to sit and be with you. And we pray that we hold fast and challenge ourselves in that way, that we are encouraged by your word and your word alone. In your name, amen.